Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello and welcome to the IGN UK podcast. My name is Chris Tilley and this week I'm joined by absolutely no one. Uh, I'm all on my own here this week, which is a bit sad, um, but it's not a tragedy because uh, rather than doing a usual podcast, we've got a special treat for you, uh, which revolves around the movie Ender's Game, uh, a science fiction film that's coming out in cinemas next week. It comes out on Friday, October the 25th. Um, and it's an adaptation of the classic sci-fi novel about a brilliant and remarkably gifted 12-year-old who is trained to become Earth's ultimate military leader. Uh, the film stars Harrison Ford, Sir Ben Kingsley, Viola Davis and Asa Butterfield plays the lead character. And we recently had the film's director Gavin Hood and producer Roberto Orsi into the office to talk about the movie. So this week we're going to play uh, the, that interview for you in which we talk about uh, adapting the book, we talked about the special effects, we talked, talked about the cast a little bit and building the battle room which is the zero gravity playground where they play these futuristic games uh, that test the trainees' um, strategic and physical abilities. So uh, as well as talking about that movie, we also talk about some of their future projects. Uh, Bob's worked on uh, The Amazing Spider-Man, which just finished shooting, and he's got Van Helsing and The Mummy reboots coming up. So we talk a bit about that. And we also talk to to Gavin about uh, the Wolverine movie that he made um, a few years ago that didn't go entirely according to plan. So yeah, sit back uh, and listen to uh, what the guys have to say about Ender's Game. Hi, this is Chris here, and I'm with Gavin Hood, the writer-director of Ender's Game, and Bob Orsi, the producer of Ender's Game. Now, the film is based on the best-selling book by Orson Scott Card, and I could tell you a little bit about the plot, but maybe I should pass it over to you guys. Uh, Gavin, could you give us kind of a brief rundown on the story of this movie? Yeah, essentially, it's, um, it's a story about a young, uh, a young boy called uh, Ender Wigan, played by Asa Butterfield, who is drafted into a military, um, a military environment because we face the threat of an invasion. And he comes up against this uh, formidable Colonel Graf, played by Harrison Ford, and another amazing icon of both theatre and film here in England, uh, uh, Sir Ben Kingsley, plays Mazer Rackham. And it's really the story about how the adults, uh, Harrison Ford, Sir Ben Kingsley, and Viola Davis, um, try to train this young person who's truly a genius to be the savior of mankind in this war. Um, so we, we have you know, fantastic opportunities in space to, 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 to show some incredible visuals and some beautiful stuff, but we also have this very strong character-driven story at the center. And, um, and the adults don't necessarily agree on how best to raise this genius. And I think that's what gives it its relatability. I, what I love is the relationships between these characters and the way um, Viola Davis comes up against Harrison Ford and they disagree on what's best for this kid. And, and it's, it's obviously a sort of kind of a classic book. Uh, when did the, fir- the two of you first come into contact with the book? Well, I first read it when I was 12 years old. <clears throat> you know, the book was published in 84, so I read it, I think, probably shortly after it was published. And I just always loved that it, that it didn't talk down to, to young people, but that it was a grand space adventure that actually had some challenging themes in it and some challenging um, structure in it and a couple of surprises that you don't normally see in a sci-fi story. It's not just a, a simple story that you can predict the outcome of. It's, it actually surprised me when I read it. 
um, and you read it. Yeah, I, I was um, much older. I read it about five years ago. Um, and for me, it was, this was what's so great about collaborating with Bob on this, is that we both come at it from very different points of view. Um, I came at it as, as an adult, I, and I was drafted into the military when I was 17 years old in a very strange and rather intense time of my life. Um, and, uh, and so I'm looking back on this, and, and it's generating all this emotion in me about this, wait, this is a sci-fi story and I'm loving the battle room and I'm loving all this stuff. But it's core, these, these feelings of what it's like to be taken away from your home and placed in an environment where people are yelling and screaming at you and, and praising you for aspects of your personality that are more aggressive and, and, and that your mother would think like, well, well, that's not what I want my son to be. Hmm. Um, it's just a very interesting dynamic. And so I think this is what's exciting, was exciting for us is that you access this film, you know, whether you're a younger person or a more senior person, you can access the film um, because you're relating to it either as a young person through the experience of Ender or you're accessing it through Harrison Ford and Sir Ben Kingsley, these adults trying to train this kid and yet at the same time you're also remembering what it's like to be a kid and all those strong feelings you had um, about what is right and what is wrong and what is the right way for me to be in this world. You know, He has the split between his tremendous capacity for compassion which is like his sister Valentine. And he has this capacity for real aggression and violence, which is more like mm -hmm. his brother Peter. And, mm -hmm. and so what we love is the way that this kid is struggling to find his identity. This is not just a goody versus baddie movie. And um, the, the idea to turn this into a movie has been bouncing around Hollywood for, for decades. <laughs> yeah. And no one's been able to pull it off. I, I don't know if it was one of these notoriously difficult books to turn into a movie. What, what made you feel like you could do this, Bob, as a, as a producer? Well, first it was finding a, a, a like-minded group of people, including Gavin and including Gigi Pritzker, who first got the rights to the book at Odd Lot, who wanted to preserve the complexity and the challenge of the book. Uh, other incarnations of the book that had been attempted uh, by various studios tried to kind of make it a Hollywood ending and change it and, and just sort of take the title and not be true to what the book was. So, number one, when we all got together and we all agreed, we have to protect this book. We have to protect it for fans. We have to be true to what we loved about it. That was number one. And number two, you know, audiences got sophisticated enough. They've seen everything. And I think for a while there, when the studios had the book, they were concerned that it was, you know, young protagonist, but a challenging mm. adult themes. And I think they were scared, frankly. And, and now, because audiences have seen everything, I think they're hungry for something original. And finally, you know, the technology finally caught up with us. You know, now that this movie is producible and able to give it the grand spectacle that it deserves, the special effects by Digital Domain are amazing. Yeah. And they're actually our, partner, our producing partners in the movie because they were there from the very beginning with us. And so we could actually make the movie for less than a trillion dollars finally and, you know, and actually you know, and still have it be amazing. Yeah. And what was the biggest challenge then in, in writing the adaptation? Um, well, sort of twofold. One, one is trying to create fantastic visuals of the iconic, you know, scenes in the movie. For example, the battle room, which um, is a great space in the book. But in the book, it takes place in a sort of black box, and these kids fly around in zero gravity. And, and I'm, I'm thinking when I'm writing it, okay, well, I got to, I got to give this some real visual kick. And I had this <laughs> idea to do it in a glass dome. He's laughing, getting here, wine, and saying, "We got this." I come into the, the office one day. I said, "I know what to do with the battle room to make it really visual, not a black box. Why go up into space if you're going to be in a black box? I want to put it in a huge glass sphere where, when you jump out into zero gravity, you kind of see out and you see as you would in space. You'd see the sun and the moon and the stars and Earth below in all its beautiful." you know, blue, beautiful blue earth. How, how can we do that? So we put a big glass sphere. 
and Bob, and everyone's looking at me and my production. Sure, let me, let me just sell my house. Yes, yeah. exactly. Like, do you Thanks, understand buddy. how much this is going to cost? And I went, but um, thankfully, you know, we did some great concept art with, with Ben Proctor and Sean Harworth, our great production designers, and, <laughs> and, um, and showed everybody. And then these guys helped me sell it, and, and we did manage to get the money to do that. So one of the challenges was creating those environments in the most beautiful way. But then on a, on a character-driven level, the trick is that the book is also very much about what a character is thinking and feeling and these complicated themes mm -hmm. of what is my, the essence of my nature and how do you be true to those ideas in a very different medium. In a book, a novelist can spend paragraphs telling you what someone is feeling, telling you what they're thinking. Films, that can be really boring. What do you use? Lots of voiceover. What you want to do is try and imagine the character exists outside of the book and that the novelist has beautifully described this living, breathing character and that I'm coming along with my cameras to photograph and film and try and understand this character using a different tool. And as Bob has said, we wanted to be true to that spirit in this medium. And so it's about translating scenes in ways that good actors, which we have, can react to each other and you can read through the reaction of a great actor what they're thinking and feeling very quickly, which is a tool that the book doesn't have. We have living, breathing actors. And hopefully the end result using different art forms is to give the audience that feeling they got when they read the book of an insight into this character of Ender Wigan and his struggle. And what did you have to change to make it work as a, as a movie? Yeah, sure. That's okay. Can we go? Good. Uh, what did you have to change to make the, the script work? Well, there's a couple of these practical challenges of the fact that a film is a two-hour experience, give or take, and the novel could go on for 15 hours. So the first thing that Bob and I talked about is compressing time, and how do we do that without offending the fans? Mm -hmm. And um, in the book, the, the character is six years old, and by the end, he's 13 years old. Well, we chose to take that last year and compress the story so we could use one actor because it's really hard if you're changing actors on an audience every 10 minutes. So that was the first thing, compress the time period and set the character up as already in a military environment so we don't have to watch him learn how to march and salute and so we just take that for granted, he's there. But then still maintain all of that trajectory through the battle room and, and so on, that, 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 that really is about the emotional journey. Um, the other thing is that the, the novel, Bob, you speak to the, how prescient the novel was. On, you always speak so eloquently about the, the whole blogging thing and why, why we chose to eliminate People ask us, what did you have to do to, to uh, uh, <clears throat> modernize the novel? And we say nothing. Mm. The, the, the novel was very prescient about exactly, you know, table touching devices, about uh, uh, action at a distance in terms of controlling technology and controlling, uh, you know, drones, essentially. Uh, the internet was very much uh, something that I'd never considered until I read that book as a 12 year old. And, Sure enough, there it pops up years later. So we didn't have to do much to, to modernize it. We just had to be true to it. And what, but what about the story of um, Peter and Valentine back yes. on Earth? Because that's kind of not played up terribly much in the movie. No, it isn't. And, I, and, I, uh, and I'm glad you asked because, to Bob's point, the things that were very original in 1984, like blogging and these kids, today everybody does that. So when you're looking at what is going to have to go to tell the story in two hours, I hope fans will forgive me for saying that the, the blogging between Demosthenes and Locke, which I love, by the way, as yeah. a story, is two things. One, it's not as sort of um, modern as it was then, because everybody does that now. And two, it's not the most visual thing to do cinematically. Two people sitting at a computer writing long philosoph philosophical discussions is not great cinema. But also, um, 
given that you've got two hours, and given the co complex character development of Ender Wigan, I really felt I had a breakthrough when I thought to myself, this kid has to be in every scene in the film in order to bond the audience to him in ways that truly let them experience what it's like to be him. So if I set as a rule that I will have Peter and Valentine involved only insofar as they interact with Ender, and I eliminate, unfortunately, that, sub, that subplot of their story. And the only other times that we're with, with characters that, where Ender isn't present is when Graf and Anderson argue. And who are they arguing about? Ender. So it's a way of getting the audience to connect with a character that is quite complicated to get to grips with. But his, um, his brother and sister, Peter and Valentine, are still in the book. They're very and much still in the movie. movie. Yeah. And they play a, a very important part in the theme of the book, in, of the movie, just like they did in the book. They absolutely do. They're, 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 Valentine represents compassion. Mm -hmm. Peter there represents aggression. They interact with him in that way. Peter bullies Ender. We haven't shied away from any of that, which is critical to Ender's character development. So um, I, I believe we've been really true mm -hmm. to the themes and ideas of the book. Unfortunately, we did not follow the plot area of, of the Master of Luck. Uh, and Bob, you mentioned uh, drones, uh, which uh, play a big part in, in the movie, and uh, another thing that were quite prescient from the novel. Mm -hmm. uh, you really feel, it feels like you guys have really played up the anti-war message from the book in your movie. Was that important to you? I would say it's more mm -hmm. a question that the, that the movie raises. In a way, if you are uh, sympathizing with Colonel Graff and with the international fleet, they're attempting to do what they believe is best, which is save the Earth from a potential future attack. If you're Ender and you are resisting the nature to be aggressive and resisting the part of his personality that Peter represents, uh, I think he, you know, he, their argument in the, in the movie is exactly the argument that we hope people will have when they leave the movie. So it's, it's an, it's, it was important to us to not treat it as, a, as an easy thing to simply uh, have an answer to. The, the book and the movie both, both really are a question. Yeah, I think, I think that Colonel Graf's um, struggle and why he's also not just a stereotype and why I think Harrison very generously wanted to play the part is that he's highly manipulative of these kids, but he truly, in his mind, the super objective is most important and he has to turn a blind eye to the struggles of these kids. Whereas uh, Viola Davis's character is very... And the clashes between those two adults I love because this is a typical clash between a mother and a father trying to raise any kid anywhere in the world. Like, what's best and how do we do this? What do they need? And, and parents don't always agree. And so for me, that's very relatable in the film, for, for adults to see that these clashes happen. Um, she, uh, Viola Davis is really concerned about the psychological well-being of these kids. And Graf's going, I don't care about their psychological well-being. That's a luxury we can't afford while we're attempting to, to solve a fundamental military problem. And what did Harrison and Asa bring, bring to these parts? Very little from Harrison. Um, no, <laughs> no. no I, what, what do they bring? I mean, it's fantastic as a director when you're making a story about a young protagonist who comes up against a manipulative, iconic, very powerful, charismatic Colonel, Colonel Graf to have young Asa Butterfield come up against an icon like Harrison Ford, who, as Bob sort of jokingly implies, can be quite dry and wonderful. He's a delightful man, but he, he, he really comes with serious stature. Yeah. And that's great. So little Asa Butterfield arrives on the set, and we shot in sequence, which really helped. Not only his emotional journey, the fact is the kid grew two inches and the wardrobe department was going, what the heck, we've got to adjust this. And the, but it really helped because for, mm -hmm. for him to shoot in sequence, and, and those initial first weeks on the set where he's quite intimidated by Harrison Ford, exactly what you want for Colonel Graf. And then by the end, when he's gotten to know Harrison better and his confidence is up, he's able to tackle those scenes where he really confronts Colonel Graf. 
Um, so I think that was helpful. And when you have Harrison Ford, and, you know, and you're flying up into orbiting space station to be trained by him, there's a credibility, as you're saying. You, you believe that that he's maybe participated in other Star Ish. Wars ish things. Oh, okay. <laughs> very good. Very good. Cool. Um, I have a couple of questions from our readers, if mm. you don't mind. Um, the first one is from uh, Virgil Tupinier. Briefs. We wear briefs. <laughs> um, <laughs> Are you afraid that fans of the book will hate this film? Of course. <laughs> We're <laughs> human. Was it? We're fans of the book. I think yeah. that's the important thing yeah. to realize. We are fans of the book. And that fear of not delivering on the great ideas and themes in the book is something that drives you when you're adapting the book. It's something that drove all our conversations. I think it's important for fans to know that fans of the book made the movie. The only tricky thing is that, of course, everyone who reads a book sees things slightly differently. We think we see them the same. But we all come from slightly different experiences. We all bring ourselves to a piece of art. And visualizing things, I'm rather proud of that battle room, which is slightly different to the book. I hope in some ways it's visually more exciting because it had to be for the screen. And the same with the end battle. I hope that fans will appreciate the simulation room, which in the book is a game played on computers. And I remember sitting in the, um, in the planetarium with my kids and I was wondering, how am I going to make this simulated computer game mm -hmm. really visually exciting? And my kids love space and stars. And so we go to the planetarium. And here you are in this huge domed environment when this big projector comes up and creates these stars. If you watch the movie, I mean, I stole that idea from the planetarium. There's a giant projector in the battle room, the simulation cave where Ender works. And it projects this world around him um, so that you can play a game in this huge environment instead of just on a screen. And then the other place I went to was the Disney concert hall. And I'm watching this conductor and he's conducting and he's standing in one place. But there's so much energy coming off him because I was so worried it'd be static. How do you give this thing visual and dramatic energy? And he's conducting and sweating. So those two ideas, the conductor in the, in the planetarium, or what became Enderwig and standing in what we hope, is a really exciting game. And as Bob was mentioning earlier, you know, you look at the iPad, you do these sort of gestures. Well, in our game, you do this, we develop this gestural language where when Ender does this, the whole world moves around him. I'd love to play that game. Cool. And, um... I picked the hardest name to say. Yanis uh, Pitrezik. Sorry if I said that wrong. Hi, Yanis. Um, it says, Ender's Game is the first book in a saga. Surely if the movie's successful, there will be a sequel. Um, have you already thought about how you'd go about doing this? Handing it to Bob. Well, first of all, we always like to say that it's bad luck to count your sequels before they hatch. Yeah. We can't help but dream at, at night sometimes or have a you know after work uh, talk about it. But we also want to make sure that we learn whatever it is that people respond to about Ender's Game. If, if we, we like to get feedback from the audience to make sure that we accentuate the positive and decentuate the negative, depending on, on what happens. So, you know, there are several books, and and there's possibly even original stories in between that could be that could be generated and that could be dreamed up. Um, but we'll you know, ask us again in a few months. <laughs> I think the important thing right now is just to make the best film you can and 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 hand it out to the audience, and and I hope they really enjoy it. Agreed. Um, speaking of sequels, you've worked on Amazing Spider-Man 2, Bob. Um, what was it like joining that franchise? Uh, Spider-Man was one of my favorite, you know, there's kind of the trifecta. It's Superman, Batman, Spider-Man. Really, to me, there's nobody. Oh, you know, Wonder Woman. I would love to. Let's do Wonder Woman. Ender Wigan, no one. There's Ender Wigan. It was fun to, to come into such a well-oiled machine and have them welcome us very nicely over there. And how is, how is this one going to differ to the first one? Uh, this one is, I think, a little bit, has the lessons of the first one, 
Uh, it's a little bit more complicated, I would say, as sequels tend to be allowed to be, because the first one has established the world and it's a great straight shot. The second one uh, is very much uh, covering some of the more famous moments of the Spider-Man comics. So if you're a fan of the Spider-Man comics, you may, you may be a fan of this movie. Interesting. And I believe they plan to shoot the third one quite soon after, is that right? And if so, have you started on that script or is it done or where are you at with that? No, we haven't started uh, uh, on that one uh, as we, we haven't even finished the first movie. I mean, sorry, the, the second, this one. Yeah. Uh, as soon as we finish that and we can see what, what it is, we can start going, oh, that works, that didn't work, Let's, what could the third one be? And Gavin, you dip mm. your toe in superhero waters. Mm. Would you go back to that genre, do you think? It's a very interesting question. I think what I loved about doing Ender's Game is my early work was either stuff that I'd written originally myself or adapted from a wonderful book. I mean, um, and when I got my big break in Hollywood, I, I was making a film that, that frankly was still being worked on by scriptwriters back in LA while I was in Australia. So it was, <laughs> I, I learned a great deal from that movie. I did, you know, over a thousand visual effects shots. Hugh Jackman is a wonderful guy. But it was a real baptism by fire in terms for, for, for me, kind of going, wow, this is, this is weird. I'm getting pages the night before and trying to make it work on the day. And, 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 and so what I loved about doing Ender's Game was we were able to work for an extended period of time before we ever started shooting to really know that the themes and ideas we're exploring and what we love about mm -hmm. the book is truly being reflected in the screenplay. And then now that's clear. Now let's shoot the script. And we didn't have to sort of make changes on the day or, or get rewrites from a studio because I'd, I'd done the ad adaptation with a lot of great advice from my producers and we were all in sync about what movie we were trying to make. What's tough when you, some of these big franchises, um, when they have to be made quite quickly because for whatever reason, there can be a lot of voices and that are not necessarily all clear on what it is that it's through. So that was the big lesson for me. Be clear about the themes and ideas you're exploring and then be true to them. And that was great about w working with these guys is um, Bob's very much in that mindset and so was Gigi Pritzker and Linda. Mm -hmm. I'm very grateful to have folks who were behind us developing the project to a point where we all were happy with what it was we were trying to make. And then, because it's hell making a movie. It's really <laughs> tough. You know, so much going on. But to have a script that we were all in agreement on and, and could proceed with was great. And I'm intrigued, did you watch The Wolverine that came out this year? And if so, I haven't seen that one, only because I've been traveling like mm. a crazy person. If it's Tuesday, it must be London, right? So um, I haven't yet seen it, no. Fair enough. And the last thing I wanted to ask you about, Bob, was uh, I read that you're potentially doing a version of Van Helsing. Mm. Is that correct? Yes, we're producing Van Helsing. I mean, it's quite soon after the previous one. So what, why do you think this is a good time to sort of go back? Uh, there's a there's a interesting thing that could happen at Universal where they have this amazing library of of their old monsters and these kinds of heroes, and the idea of trying to think of creating a universe, Van Helsing uh, in one, we're also producing the Mummy for them. We're we're kind of uh, imagining uh, updating these kinds of things. So you don't want to just make remakes when you're when you're doing things unless it's unless it's really worthy worthy of being a remake. But when you have an idea for something that that actually can be made uh, different and yet being true to, to what it was. We, we just had a, a notion of how to make it modern and how to, how to make it um, just a, a slightly different tone. It's not just going to be a, a remake. And which monster would you most like to get your hands on if, if that does happen? I love Frankenstein just because it's such a twisted, uh, complicated monster. A monster who's not exactly a monster. And actually there's a, there's a little bit of that in Ender's Game actually. 
classic sci-fi, the monsters are merely monsters. The enemies are monsters. In this one, it's a little more complicated. Ender is trying to understand his enemy, and he's trying to understand them so that he can better defeat them, but also in understanding them, uh, comes to empathize with mm. what's happening. And that's, that's not something you see in monster movies. Cool. I like the way you brought it back around to Ender's game. I'm an old pro. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, that's all we've got time for. But thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Um, good luck with the movie, which I believe is out on October 25th. Is that correct? Yes, it comes out in, in, in England before the States, about a week before. So come on, England. <laughs> Show those yanks. There you go. Great. Well, good job. Nice to meet you guys. Cheers, thank you very Thanks very so much. much. Cheers. So that was what uh, Gavin and Bob had to say about Ender's Game. Um, the film is out on October 25th, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, so I recommend you checking it out. Uh, thanks for listening to this uh, very special podcast, and I promise next week it will be back to normal. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.